My first child was born between two cyclones. It was early in the morning, one day in January 2013, and I started feeling those first contractions. As we drove to the hospital, we passed the wreckage left in the wake of Cyclone Evan, which had hit my home island Samoa just a few weeks earlier. Evan had been the worst tropical cyclone to hit Samoa in over two decades. There were huge holes on the road, debris where homes once stood, and massive clouds hung heavy in the sky, growing darker by the minute. That night, another cyclone was expected to make landfall, Cyclone Gary. Driving, I felt so scared for my baby. I was thinking about all the things that could go wrong. What if the hospital cannot withstand the winds? What if I have to seek refuge in my final hours of labor? Where will we go? When we arrived, I was taken to a bed. My labor took forever. It was my first baby and I was nervous. Then that night at around 1 a.m., just as the winds outside picked up, my daughter's heart rate plummeted. The doctor made the call to deliver her by cesarean, just as the power went off across most of the island. As they lifted me onto the operating table, I felt a deep fear. What if the hospital generator failed? In what seemed like only a few minutes, I heard a voice, a little cry, as she made her entrance into the world. I cried too, out of sheer relief that she was safe and with very healthy lungs. Cyclone Gary never made landfall, and I finally felt a sense of hope after weeks of uncertainty. It is part of the Samoan culture to name a child after a significant event that happened at the time of their birth. This is how we mark events in oral history, through our names. If my baby was a boy, the name would have been Gary. I think my mom thought this could still work for my baby girl. But thank goodness she did not insist. My daughter would not have forgiven me. We named her Ao Ililangi, which means cloud in the sky befitting the events that occurred at the time of her birth. Samoan birth ritual includes the bearing of the umbilical cord on your ancestral land. Mine is under French Bani tree, on my mother's ancestral land in our village, on the island of Savai. My daughter's belongs there too, as that is her place. Historically in Samoa, mothers gave birth at home in open phallus by the village midwife. As with the umbilical cord, the placenta, known as fanua, is buried in the soil. Fanua is also our word for land. This is because the two are intrinsically tied. Our land is our birthright. It is entrenched in language and culture. This is something that I truly love about being Samoan, being a part of the islands we come from. You are born to land, to the same land of your ancestors, and that is where you die. I want my daughter to always have this land, the land of her grandmother, of her great-grandmother, and all those before her. But for Ao Ililangi and her younger brother, Tangaloa Langi, this is becoming more difficult. During my childhood, a cyclone would hit about every five years. My children have already experienced 11 cyclones and significant weather events in their short lives so far. 
the changing weather, the frequency of cyclones and floods, these things threaten their choice to live on their land. So where does that leave us? We often talk about the existential threat of climate change to islands in the Pacific. But what does that actually mean? What does it mean for the leaders of those countries trying to make huge decisions about the future of their nations? And for people trying to figure out if they can stay on their land or be forced to leave? I think the choice to stay or leave your home because of the changing environment is one every Pacific Islander has had to consider at some point in time. For some, this might be a choice they need to make in the future. For others, it's more urgent. For Vanessa, the choice wasn't one she was seriously thinking about until she was suddenly forced to. It's an under coconut tree conversation, huh? <laughs> yes. Vanessa is a friend of mine. We met at a dancing class. She's from Lotopa on the Samoan island of Upolu. So I was actually born and raised in that village, Lotopa. After she married her husband, she moved to Fatsoia. They made a home there with their four children and set up a business right next door, a steel factory. We had an amazing life in Samoa. We weren't thinking of going anywhere. But that all changed when Cyclone Evan hit in 2012, the same storm that hit just before I gave birth to my daughter. So it was a Friday, December the 13th, I remember, because we were preparing to fly to Australia the very next day for our holidays, packing our bags. We had everything laid out on the bed. So it was... A very exciting day to start off with. It was raining a lot that day, but it wasn't so bad that the flights had been cancelled or anything like that. Then suddenly, things changed. It started raining really, really heavy. By 4, 4.30, um, we started seeing some water rising, you know, just around the house. And my husband was outside I couldn't hear what he was saying, but I know there's something wrong because he was, you know, yelling. And so I ran outside and I saw this massive gush of water. What Vanessa and her husband John saw was a wall of water rushing down from the Vaisingana River, a large cross-island river. Fatsoia, where Vanessa and her family lived, is located on a low-lying floodplain, and their home was in the middle of the village, so the water was coming right their way. So my husband, he said to me, get the kids, get the kids, grab the kids. And I quickly ran in, he came as well, and my baby was sitting on the toilet at that time. I grabbed him by the shirt, didn't even have time to pull his undies up, because the water was already rising, it was getting to our knees. So by the time we got out of the house, we were already struggling. That's how quick the water came. The first plan was to get in the car and drive to safety. But once outside, they realized their car had been washed away. The water was rapidly rising. We were really struggling. I had two kids with me, both hands. We had two kids. And, um, and there was a point where we were looking at each other like we're struggling. Are we going to make a decision to let one of them go? 
at one point we didn't really have a choice. It was the water was really strong, and we were to hold on with our hands full with with the kids, all of us would be gone. So、um, it was the most scariest <laughs> feeling ever. Luckily, we didn't have to do that. We managed to get all our four kids holding on to the side gate of the workshop, got onto the stairs, and made our way up to the to this little storeroom. I can't even imagine what it's like as a mom, you know, to go through that period.、Um, and I remember seeing you that next morning and not realizing what you had just gone through. I wouldn't wish it on. Any parents to to have had that experience, and just when I think about it in detail, with our hands full with with the kids, that's when I break. By the time we got upstairs to the storeroom, we looked down, our whole house is gone. Like there was nothing there. The whole house was gone. Our truck, our car, all the big machines that were bolted to the ground in our workshop. Everything that we worked so hard for just gone. Everything gone. Within minutes, the water just took it all. But they were the lucky ones. Fourteen people died, including one of their neighbors, a little girl. The rain subsided, and besides Vanessa's mobile phone, which one of the kids was holding when they ran from the house, and the clothes on their back. They had not a possession left in the world. We got to think of how, where, you know, we're going to start all over again, and just the thought of starting all over again was a pain. You know, it was a real pain.、Mm-hmm. They decided if they were going to start from scratch, they would do so in Australia, where things felt more secure. They moved to Brisbane, where they've now been living for eight years. The thing Vanessa says she misses the most about Samoa is that no matter how hard things might get, someone always turns up for you, family and strangers alike. That's what I really miss—the、um, friendliness. Because I remember moving here, we were walking down, and we always smile at people and wave. And then my husband said to me one day, "Quit it, babe. It's—they're not going to wave back at you." And I'm like. What's wrong with people here? No one's smiling back at you and waving a hand. She's like, so sad. You know, in as much as we say this is home, this is our second home. You know, Samoa is still home for us. Vanessa and her family still have land back in Fatoia, land to keep them connected to the islands, land for their children in case they ever want to go back to live. So much of the choice to stay or leave the Pacific Islands is about our children, about the next generation. It's hard to impart the culture, language, and way of life of an island without that island. For my children, for Vanessa's children, they need that piece of land, however humble, however small, to remain intact and accessible, so they too can benefit from the life lessons that only our island environment can offer. These are the things that island mothers all over the Pacific grapple with, especially in the face of the climate crisis. 
It's certainly something very much on the mind of poet Kathy Chetnil Kitchener. My family and I have traveled a long way to be here today, all the way from the Marshall Islands. Kathy's creative practice explores environmental and climate change issues threatening her home island, the Marshall Islands. Dear Mata Filipinum, you are a seven-month-old sunrise of gummy smiles. You are bald as an egg and bald as a Buddha. Your thighs that are thunder, shrieks that are lightning, so excited for bananas, hugs, and our morning walks along the lagoon. In 2014, she addressed the opening ceremony of the United Nations Secretary General's Climate Summit with a poem she had recently written. In the poem, she's talking to her daughter, Matafele. Her full name is actually Matafele Benum Kathy Makarusa. So Matafele is um, a name that her father chose. It's one of his aunts. And it's also a name of, of a village that his family comes from. Dear Mata Filipinum, I want to tell you about that lagoon, that lucid, sleepy lagoon lounging against the sunrise. Men say that one day that lagoon will devour you. They say it will gnaw at the shoreline, chew at the roots of your breadfruit trees, gulp down rows of... The conference was in New York. Kathy traveled there from the Marshall Islands. At the time, Mata was seven months old. And at the time, I was teaching full-time and, like, breastfeeding throughout the night. And uh, I, I was, you know, I was exhausted throughout that time. They say you, your daughter, and your granddaughter too will wander, rootless, with only a passport to call home. Attending the conference were leaders from all over the world, including Barack Obama and David Cameron. At first, she wasn't sure what to say to them. I think um, being an island mother, though, we're also aware of how vulnerable our islands are. And then you couple that with being a mother. You're not just, it's not just your islands. It's also your children you're fighting for. It felt very intuitive to realize, you know, I don't know how to talk to all these world leaders, but maybe I can direct this poem towards my daughter. No one's drowning, baby. No one's moving. No one's losing their homeland. No one's going to become a climate change refugee. Or should I say no one else? The poem received a standing ovation at the UN that day, and a video of her performance later went viral. You know, we have a lot of fear that's that's pushing us into the climate fight. But at the root of it is really just a lot of love, you know, loving your islands and loving your people and loving um, your community and and wanting our community to to continue to be here. You know, it's such a simple ask because, like, we just want to still be here in our island. To the Carteret Islanders of Papua New Guinea and to the Tarot Islanders of the Solomon Islands, I take this moment to apologize to you. We are drawing the line here. Kathy was born in the Marshall Islands, a low-lying atoll in the North Pacific that experts say is one of the countries most at risk of disappearing due to sea level rise. She grew up in Hawaii And it wasn't until she finished university and moved to her hometown, Majuro, that she started to understand how serious things were. It's so small, you know, our our islands, and um, it's just all ocean surrounding you. And that was a huge shock for me to see how vulnerable we were. And then that's when I began to do my own personal research into climate change and then talk to more community members about it and even talk to my mom about it. 
Kathy's mom is Hilda Heine, the former president of the Marshall Islands. She was the first woman to be elected as leader of a Pacific Island nation and has been a fierce warrior in the global climate fight. When we experienced our first king tide uh, flooding, which is the flooding that happens when there's king tide season, high tide season out here in the Marshalls. I asked mom about, you know, if she grew up with something like this and she said no, she hadn't seen anything like this before and she, and she seemed just as shocked as I was. After attending the UN conference in New York, Kathy started to feel that writing about the climate crisis wasn't enough. She became active in her community and is now the climate envoy for the Marshall Islands. The Marshall Islands government wants to ensure its citizens can exercise their right to remain in their home islands, believing it is their choice whether and when to migrate. Our government has had a really strong stance against mass migration, and I agree with them wholeheartedly. Um, I've I've never advocated for mass migration because, uh, you know, so much of our land is a part of who we are and we shouldn't have to leave. As someone who grew up in the diaspora, I can say that living away from home comes with its own difficulties and um, there's a loss that can happen if you move away from your islands. That's why our government is so focused on our national adaptation plan, um, because we're trying to figure out ways to adapt our islands so that we can stay, so that migration is an option for those who would want to, but that it's not the only option. And I think giving up entirely on your islands, it just doesn't, that's not something we're willing to do. Kathy says that leaving is not just a difficult choice, it's unthinkable. It's not an option she or others are willing to consider. It'd be a huge loss. It, uh, to, to be forced out of your, your islands, is, it's, it's unjust. It's, um, it's inhumane. It means the world has given up on us. It means we've given up. And it means that, you know, countries didn't take responsibility when they could have. You know, industries and leaders didn't do what they promised in all of these speeches. Um, Yeah, it would be devastating. It would be awful. It's something that I don't want to consider. My hope is that the most basic hope is that we're still around, that we're not leaving. There's a unique element to the land loss for Marshallese women. They are a matrilineal society, which means that land is passed down through the woman. Talk to me about this power that will be lost with the land if that so happens. It's kind of taking the power away from women and mothers. What are your thoughts on this? I can only say that, um, you know, there is a, a sense of leadership and a sense of respect that women can glean from this traditional land tenure system. There's so little land out here. So, you know, whatever land you have, you hold on to, and it means everything to you. I mean, look at us. We, I named my daughter after a piece of land, you know, because that's, that's the power that land has. It informs um, the relationship. It informs all of our relationships and our society, the structure of our society. So I think, yeah, I think it would, it would definitely impact the level of leadership and respect that women have. Dear Mata Filipinum, you are eyes heavy with drowsy weight, so just close those eyes and sleep in peace because we won't let you down.
You'll see. Kathy's daughter Matafele is now seven years old, and her island is even more under threat from a climate crisis that was not of her doing or that of her parents or her grandparents. So, what happens to her, her culture and her island, when it can no longer withstand the rising waters? What becomes of her as a Marshallese if the Marshall Islands disappear? That's a very difficult question because I have to stress that an island has never disappeared. In this three-part series, we explore the story of the Pacific Islands and the people, cultures, and societies that are most at risk when islands succumb to the rising seas. It comes up into people's homes, it goes into the garden and onto their crops, which kills their food, basically. What options do Pacific Island people have? How are individuals and nations contending with this impossible choice? Who wants to live where you were born and your grandparents were born, where you, were, you played and grew up and went to school? Who wants to live? And what does the world owe Pacific Islanders? Those who contribute, uh, those that are responsible for the causes of climate change, have to pay for the damages we are experiencing. And that's basically the bottom line. An Impossible Choice was produced by Audiocraft's Laura Briley-Newton and Jess Beneth. Executive producers are Kate Lyons and Jess Beneth. Sound and mix by John Chia. Additional research by Joshua McDonald. And I'm your host, Langipoiva Sherelle Jackson. <laughs>